Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Look, y'all know we harp on it a lot. You need a good pair of binos. Yeah, I never hunted with binos until I was almost into my 20s. I never did it when I was a teenager or anything like that. Or when I was a kid, we never had binos. And when I bought my first pair of Vortex binos, the first binos I ever purchased back in like 2015, it immediately made a huge difference for me, especially in the turkey woods. So give yourself the advantage of a good pair of binos this spring, whether you're looking for more of like an entry-level bino like the Vortex Diamondbacks or something really, really nice like the Razors. Vortex is going to have something for you. And hey, don't pay full price for it. Use our discount code at eurooptic.com. Use the code SGN10 to get a discount on any Vortex optics that you want to order. Again, that's eurooptic.com, code SGN10 to go get a discount on any Vortex product you order. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. This is take 47 for this intro, I think. (laughs) Um, Jacob. Oh my God! Was was that good enough? No, for you? it wasn't at all. We restarted. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're rolling with it. We're rolling with it. Okay, let's roll with it. Whatever. Yeah. So, guys. So a little bit of backstory on why this is such a pain in the butt to do this intro is because we just started doing the intro, going through Jacob's uh, story of the buck he just killed, and then we realized that. We did that last week, and 16 minutes in, we had to stop and shut it down. Mm. Oh, that was so stupid. But um, when we did that podcast, we were talking about you know the the hunt and everything, and you had not 
putting your hands on him yet. So uh, why don't you give us the conclusion? Oh, man. So first off, I lost my re- my release again, and I'm pissed because of that. Every time Jacob kills a deer, he throws this release Every away. Every freaking time. So, uh, guys, I've been shooting a thumb release going on five years now. I have never lost my release previously. Okay, I lied. On one hunt I did, but I recovered it on the hunt. Um, so up to this, up until this year, I've been using the same release for going on four, you know, it was almost going on five years. Lost my release after the doe I shot in Tennessee, uh, that we did on video on some public land and had to get a new release. Got a new thumb release. I shoot thumb releases, guys. Uh, love them to death. <sighs> Only problem is you gotta like put them in your pocket or something. You can't like strap them to your wrists because they just like fling around, of course, and there's freaking metal. So, after this hunt, after I shot that buck and I was climbing down, I intentionally focused on the release that was hanging on my boat. I'm like, do not lose this. Literally said it to myself, consciously, don't lose this. Grabbed it, put it in my right pocket, okay? And you'd think with my pants I've got, these Badland pants, which are legit, um, you, you you would think there's seven pockets on it. You would think I would not lose it. Well, I'll put it in my pocket, put myself under that pocket too. Climb down. Andrew, or not Andrew, Marshall calls me, buddy Marshall, and I blame him for me losing this, and I'm joking, but anyways, he calls me, pull my phone out, next thing I know, I get back to the car, and no release, and I walk through a huge hayfield, zigzag through it, looking for blood, and yeah, so I'm buying me a metal detector next, guys, next, man, I can't even talk, next, buy me a metal detector, I'm gonna find it, I'm gonna find it. I'm going to laugh so hard. We're going to make a whole video about you going out there with a metal detector trying to find your release. Dude, I don't want to buy another one. They're expensive. You'll probably find like a whole bunch of cool stuff, but not your, uh, probably not your uh, release. Probably not. I'll be... But anyways, anyways, about the buck. Yeah, about about the, buck. the buck. Okay, yeah, I get sidetracked. Um, so I'm trying to think, did we, did we talk about with Charles? Yeah, yeah, so we recorded. So yeah, we had Charles yeah. come out, Charles Miller from Miller's Recovery uh, Service. Uh, good friend of the podcast, uh, done a little work for me this year, helped me recover my first doe I shot this year, or really second doe. Um, went out there and like we talked about last week, found him, found him bedded down about 80 yards from where I was in the stand or in the saddle, uh, last week. He was bedded down. He was hurt. Uh, it was about nine o'clock when we found him. He just made a big loop around, jumped the fence and it was bedded down in some of that overgrown, uh, you know, pasture. We decided to back out, come back the next morning. And he was, you know, he's like, you know, uh, Charles was, you know, like a liver hit, you know, we'd say eight hours. You know, they'll be dead in eight hours, so go find them. And up until that point, I think it had been five hours. So he said, you know, by midnight, that deer should be dead. <clears throat> Get back the next morning at eight o'clock. We walk in with Dallas, his bloodhound, go straight to where that deer is bedded. Deer's not there. And we're like, oh, crap. Uh, we're like, okay, did he get up like when we were there last night after we saw Because we saw his eyes. He like look, put his head down and picked his head back up and then put his head down. We never saw him again. Did he like get out of there while we were standing there talking real quietly? Like what happened? And we start working Dallas and everything. And, <clears throat> you know, Dallas was, you could tell Dallas was on the scent, but it was like all over the place. And like Dallas took us for a little while, for a little while goose chase. He ran us to the south side of the property, actually where those books had all come from, that hillside. And we got down there and got down some thick stuff. Um, Andrew, you know, by the spring and everything down there. It's that patch of just real oh, yeah. thick cover. And, man, there was three mm-hmm. cedars in there. That's in the base of that spring. They all had 
fresh scrapes underneath. I mean, destroyed scrapes. And each of those cedars are probably between four to eight inches in diameter, and they were shredded. I mean, the footage is pretty cool. I mean, shredded. And I'm like, okay, this is where those bucks, and now think about it. When I saw those bucks uh, on the hillside, and they kind of like dispersed, and the, the G2 buck kind of walked up towards me, I think a lot of those bucks actually went down there, worked those scrapes and kind of in that area, and then came back up later. Um, anyways, ran all the way down to the southern property line, found another ginormous scrape, uh, or no, I'm sorry, a giant rub on another huge cedar. Uh, it's probably eight, nine inches in diameter. Uh, that was shredded as well. And then I found my camera, which I had down there, my trail camera, and the sucker was open. And I, at first I thought someone like took my SD card and SD card was in there. Come to find out, I ran the uh, the footage and it was in video mode. I had a buck, which I think is the buck I shot, was rubbing the tree that my camera was on, which is a cedar. <laughs> opened my freaking camera, my camera latches on the side, opened it, and then the the camera still took video for like, eight days afterwards until it rained and then it fried my camera. So I appreciate that buck. <laughs> Buck's like, I'm going to get him. Dude, yeah. And I freaking got him back <laughs> by God. He's in my freezer right now. So yeah, I was about to say you, you, you got him yeah, back. I came out on top. <laughs> All right. So, so back to the Jeez, buck. Man, I'm, I'm just, I'm just Go. telling the story. I'm sorry. But, uh, man, you, so you we finally, anyways, we finally get back up to that field and I'm like, man, you know, we, we kept talking. We're like, even if coyotes, we were thinking there's a lot of coyotes on the property. You know, even coyotes, if they came in, that deer, by the time they found him that night, he ought to be hurting enough. He can't be far. Like, you know, we're going to find a body probably. He's going to be all eaten up. Started doing circles with Dallas. Started getting on down one side. And then I kind of was backed up talking to somebody on the phone. And all of a sudden, uh, Charles, he yelled, like, oh, we got him. Turns out he had died. 30 yards from where he was bedded. Uh, he kind of went into some thicker stuff. And when we found him, we found out a bobcat had gotten him. And he was pretty much halfway covered up in grass where he had buried him, which is pretty cool. It was the first time I've ever seen that. Only seen it in photos before. Um, a bobcat got to him. It He pretty much ate almost all of his back right leg uh, up into his uh, stomach and got some of the back strap as well and a little bit of the left leg, uh, left hind quarter. Dang. So, yeah, that sucked. I was like, that man, sucks. and it was a lot of meat. I was like, man, come on now. So, anyways, we found him, recovered him, super happy. Um, turns out he was the buck I thought he was when I shot him, but I thought he might have been another deer. He's a, I believe he's a six, he's a six point four on his left side, on his left main beam, and his right main beam is short stubby and it splits and it's kind of like slightly bladed it's kind of cool it's like yeah it's like a bladed fork it's kind of weird it, it looks like if he got in a fight with a deer he could legit do some damage with that thing um yeah i mean all honesty, <laughs> and the dude has a shank for his right for his right main beam but uh anyways recovered him super happy took some footage um and then broke him down and boned him out uh instead of just packing him out you know quarters and everything i, I was like i'm just boning out the meat because i gotta do it anyways when i get back so boned out all the meat, uh, took both front shoulders, uh, took a little over half of each back strap. There's probably about five to six inches that was damaged, so I had to you know cut a little bit of that off and then save the rest, and then was able to salvage uh, about half of the uh, left ham, uh, and then also the necros, which by the, guy, by, by the way, guys, if you shoot a good-sized deer, whether a pretty big doe or just a good buck, you need to try that freaking necros. It amazes me how many people 
don't eat the neck meat. Like, they just throw it away. And I'm not a fan for, like, bone-in neck. I think it's, I don't know. To me, it's kind of weird. I don't want to deal with that. And it's a huge freaking piece of meat. I actually debone it, or I just really just flay it off, and it comes off very easily in two different pieces, one on the left side, one on the right side. And it's a huge piece of meat, guys. I mean, absolutely huge, uh, especially when you get off a decent-sized buck. And uh, it is phenomenal. But, I mean, throw that in a crock pot as a roast, or you can make it taco meat shredded. I mean, it is delicious. So, anyways, did all that, packed them out, and we were good to go, man. But uh, I was just happy to recover him. You know, I kind of felt pretty bad when we walked in, and he was not laying where he should have been so yeah yeah man i'm i'm just glad you found him yep did your did your due diligence and everything you've had a pretty rough year with uh with shots yeah. so i've had my best year but having a rough roughest year so far yeah so you know every shot i've had um has been this either weird shot angles or just you know was it perfect shot like that deer he was walking when i shot him i could not get him to stop like dude i was bleeding out meh, whatever as loud as i could in the tree and he would not stop so i just held right behind his shoulder and shot and it hit it was a liver hit i mean sure it liver hit um i think i measured is like six and a half seven inches back from the shoulder and if it was about three inches forward it would have been deer would have been toasted but that was another great reason why you need to have somebody you can call with a dog because if it wasn't for that I mean, even looking at the footage, I still kind of thought it was like back of the lungs. Um, and I, I did too. Yeah, and, and I mean, looking at it, and then also where the deer ran, I would have never found that deer if it wasn't for Charles and Dallas because I thought that deer was in the back of the field that I shot him in, like in the briars. And that's where I told him, like, man, we just need to walk the downwind side. He's like, I don't think the deer's in there. I mean, Dallas ain't acting like it. Dallas kept going to the freaking fence crossing he kept crossing on like three times. We went there three times, and Dallas kept wanting to – Go over the fence and kept pushing them down, and then we looked. And there's blood there, so um, yeah, that, I mean that was huge. I mean, and the deer freaking ran up behind me at 80 yards, like he circled me, and I did, I would never expect that. I thought he just ran straight down to the field and was dead. So that's key, guys. Make sure lesson learned. You know, situation like that, and you really don't know what happened. Can't really find blood because it rained. He bled a lot. He just freaking there was a lot of rain uh, after I shot him, and that kind of washed a lot of it away. So. Always make sure you have somebody you can call with a dog. And I'll say Charles and Dallas is a great team. Definitely would highly recommend them. Uh, you can check them out on Facebook at Miller Recovery Services. I believe that's, yeah, Miller yeah Miller Recovery Service. So definitely need to check those guys out. He will travel, by the way, from anywhere from Alabama, Georgia. Ten- he's, he lives in Tennessee, Illinois, Missouri, Arkansas, West Virginia, Kentucky, all that. So anyways. Just gonna let you know, um, Andrew's over here. Yeah, he's a good dude. Andrew's over here, just like texting Tiffany, just like just ignoring me. <laughs> poor, no, poor, don't even don't even <laughs> lie to me. Don't even lie to me right now. I, I, I'm I am watching you. Yeah, guys. So we did a um, a video uh, recorded podcast, but we're just gonna post the audio. But it's pretty fun with doing the uh, doing the video podcast. Not gonna lie, it's pretty entertaining. Yeah. So we we interviewed Jeff Homan, who is from Alabama. And he's he's actually lives pretty close to me, and he hunts some of the same areas that I do. And he killed a giant last year out on the area that I hunt, like just a really, really, really exceptional buck, especially for that area. And as pressured as it is, like a big mature buck like that, it's really, really a good accomplishment. Um, so we interviewed him about just kind of his tactics, you know, how he goes about 
uh, like map scouting and ground checking spots, uh, what he looks for in a spot, what he doesn't look for in a spot, like some red flags that might tell him, hey, I don't need to waste any time here, um, as well as just you know, some general hunting tactics that he kind of uses where he, he bounces around a lot until he finds exactly what he's looking for and then settles down in that area. And uh, then we also get the story on that big, huge, giant buck he killed last year. So uh, it, I think uh, I think everyone's going to enjoy this one. This kind of fits in with our 10% thing we did with uh, Richard Fott, who just killed a big freaking buck tonight. Um so yeah, this is going to be kind of like a 10% part two kind of episode. Which again, kind of recapping on the 10% is, you know, I had someone tell me this uh, a while back and I really believe it that, you know, 90% of the mature deer or mature animals coming off public land are killed by 10% of the hunters. And it's the ones that really know what they're doing and they're doing stuff different from everyone else and they're really having success. And like I said, Jeff definitely falls into this category. Richard Fott falls into this category. There's a few other guys we're going to have on that kind of falls into this category as well. So Hope you guys enjoy it. It is a legit podcast. I, I had a fun time talking with uh, with Jeff. He's a great guy. Uh, definitely a great guy to look up to uh, when it comes to public land hunting and, and why to get into public land hunting. We kind of go over that. But, Andrew, do you have anything else you want to go over? Or? Um, just that uh, y'all make sure that you're watching the, uh, the uh, YouTube channel for the video of Jacob's buck, but also make sure you're watching our Instagram channel this weekend because we're going to kill a giant. I can guarantee. Yeah. It. So guys, so <laughs> well, it'd be the past weekend because this is dropping Monday and we're hunting this weekend. So, Oh shoot. You're Good. right. Well, well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in the buck report. No big deal. But guys, yeah. Didn't, oh, there we go. Yeah. yeah. Clutch. Uh, Hey, just make sure everybody for real, uh, subscribe to the podcast. Of course, uh, give us a review, please. Uh, we really enjoy seeing your reviews on iTunes. Uh, also, make sure you follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and, of course, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're always putting out content on our YouTube channel at least once a week, sometimes more than that, just depending on what we have going on. And that's where you can kind of keep up with us on these hunts that we are filming. Uh, so we got some really cool hunts coming up this fall, too. Got, we're going to be doing some, doing some cool hunts with – I think we're going on a couple hunts with uh, Kevin Murphy. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, we'll be going uh, this December to hunt with Kevin Murphy, and that will be a, a really, really cool hunt um, as long as we can make it happen because it's going to be you and me and uh, one of my childhood best friends who I grew up hunting with, uh, Colton, and his dad, uh, Mr. Ben George, who's really the guy that kind of got me good at hunting. Uh, so he's kind of my mentor that I mention a lot. We're all going to be up there with Kevin Murphy it's going to be a really good time. We're going to film it, probably record some podcasts. So that'll definitely be some good content, I think. Because especially, man, like if we record it and release it and everything, people will understand like what I'm saying. But, man, getting Mr. Benny and Kevin Murphy together is going to be interesting because those two <laughs> those two are going to get along. We're, we're going <laughs> to buy a couple, ca- uh, couple cases of hams. Uh, is that, is oh, that, yeah. Is that, is that what that beer is called? <laughs> hams? Ham, ham, yeah. whatever. Yeah, as soon as we pull up, we camped with Kevin Murphy this summer, and as soon as we pull up, he's like, you boys want a hams? I've never seen a hams dude, before. Dude, I literally <laughs> thought he was pulling out, like, some country ham. I'm like, hey, I'm like, oh, cool, like, I can take something to eat. And he gives me a beer. I'm like, what the heck is this? Oh, yeah, dude. Then we, then we did have some country ham, and woo, buddy. I mean, that's a, tongue or slap your brains out. So it was good. And some old... But anyways, let's, uh, let's, let's uh, get to Jeff's episode. All right, what is up, everybody? We are now here with Jeff Homan, uh, who is from my neck of the woods and who is definitely a 
big buck killer fits into that 10 percent in my opinion uh jeff how are you doing man i'm good doing good today uh how y'all doing i'm doing pretty good i'll be doing better tomorrow when i'm in tennessee Jacob? yep and if uh I, i'd be doing better if i could find my release i lost for the second time this year so other than that <laughs> yeah it's oh, uh yeah yeah, Jacob's funny. got a thing where every time he kills a every time he kills a deer, he throws his release off in the woods and can't find it. <laughs> That's not not true at all. It just somehow falls out of my pocket. I don't get that. Yeah, that's the one downside of shooting a thumb release. They are easy to lose, and yeah, I, I learned that this year. So went four years without losing that can one. Get expensive. Hey, you yeah. are oh man, you are man. It's almost like I'd rather just pay for a deer to get mounted than uh, losing all my releases. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what it's coming down to right now. But, yeah, so other than that, I'm doing awesome. Yeah, this weekend, I know Andrew's going to be coming up to Tennessee. We're going to have an awesome hunt. And by this time this episode drops, hopefully we'll have a big buck in the ground as well to be uh, posting up. So Saturday's the day. But anyways, uh, Jeff, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, kind of like a little bit of your hunting history and kind of where you are today. I started uh, hunting back in 1992, December of 92, and – uh, took my first deer in Jan- January 26 of 93, which was a decent eight point, had a 15 inch spread, and I was spoiled since. Uh, I pretty much hunted public land off and on during that with some lease land in between it. Uh, I've taken some nice deer, and over the years, I've learned to be a little more selective so they have time to grow a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, how I kind of met you and found out about you is we're on a Facebook group for this particular area that we both hunt, this parcel of public land, and you you killed a a giant out there last year, which definitely got my attention. I was like, dang, this place is better than I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, it was a hundred and forty and two eighths official score by Steve Lucas. I got him scored about a month ago. Uh, oh, it was it was the biggest buck I've I've ever taken, uh, so I, I was very proud of that one. Lots of mass, good time length. Uh, we played cat and mouse. I didn't have them on camera until October 30th was the first time. Didn't get them on daylight until November 23rd or 24th, I think. And then I started hunting them pretty hard, and he beat me most of it. Now, that's one thing, uh, Jeff, that definitely I noticed, too. You know, with Andrew hunting that parcel, he started hunting it, I guess, was it a year ago, two years ago? Last year was your first year to hunt it. Yeah. Well, last year was the first year to hunt it hard. I hunted it a little bit the year before that. Yeah. And it, it's it's one of those things that, you know, look on the map and everything, it, it looks like a good piece of property, but it looks like, you know, it, it would be hard to get away from a lot of hunting pressure where you have to really try to outsmart people. Now, I remember when you did post that picture of that deer, because I'm on that group as well, and I remember Andrew, you know, contacted me about it. He said, man, I did not believe that there would be that quality of deer on this piece of public. And, and that's one thing that is really fascinating is how guys like yourself that really can hone their skills and hone down for a certain deer, if they really can get a pattern on them or just, you know, be able to locate a deer like that and be able to go in and kill deer on properties that a lot of people either overlook or they don't think there's that kind of quality out there. And that's one thing I really love about hunting public land Especially one thing I'm going to like about talking to you on this episode is kind of pick your brain about some of that, especially when it comes to maybe hunting new pieces of public. Uh, you know, that's one thing that we talk about a lot is, 
you know, hunting public land is a great way to get people outdoors, but it's also a great way to hone your skills as an outdoorsman and become a true outdoorsman. Like, you know, hence our name, the Southern Outdoorsman. Um, so I'm super excited to talk to you about that. And again, that was a phenomenal deer. And I was, you know, very happy to see you be able to take that deer off that property. Thank you guys. Because like, I was, I was so nervous. Uh, cause like I say, I'd seen him one time before and actually, um, had a mishap with him and I was lucky enough to stay on him and out of the same stand. So, but thank you. Yeah, that, that was impressive. So, I guess we'll hop into the meat and potatoes here and get into kind of what we want to talk to you about, which is kind of your tactics. So I want to I want to try and bring this like in a in a linear fashion where we start from the top and work down. You know, start with like scouting and and go down to you know hunting, like actual hunting tactics. So let's start with map scouting. I talked to you a little bit the other day, and uh, you you kind of mentioned scouting with a map, specifically satellite photography. Uh, maybe not as much topos. I think you said that you're you're better with the uh, satellite imagery. So could you just give us a quick walkthrough of, uh, of how you use those? Well, uh, like I say, the topo maps, I'm not very successful at, or at least I feel like I'm not. I don't understand quite as well as some other people, I'm assuming. But on the satellite photos, I try and find satellite photos from summer view and winter view that way i can tell difference in the tree lines a little bit better because you're you know just using them against each other and then i try and find through the winter time the colder it gets the more the pinch points between the two after leaves start falling off the trees more uh just kind of funnels the deer into the areas that you want them to come into and that's my main trick is satellite photos on the public land, even if it's an area I've hunted before, I still go back to those and try and find something that I missed. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about, you know, seeing these changes in vegetation, are you talking about seeing like a hard edge, like where maybe like a pine thicket meets a hardwood drainage or something like that? Or uh, or kind of kind of what do these pinch points look like on the map? Yes, uh, especially on the winter time, you can see it more because your hardwoods would be a darker run mixed to the pines. And you try and look at those and find where the pines, the more green trees would come in closer to each other through that little hardwood finger or um, drainage or whatever you want to call it. And that's where I try and focus more on is where those points come together the closest because that's going to give the deer the most cover and they're going to feel more comfortable walking through the daylight hours. Okay. Yeah. Um, so kind of expanding on that a little bit. So you, you find, you know, a couple of these spots that look pretty good on the map. When you go into ground check them and, you know, really actually see what they look like, what are you looking for? And uh, what are, what are some red flags that might tell you that the spots maybe not as good as it looked on the map? The number one thing that's a red flag is a bunch of tape. We're showing team members, uh, other hunters have been in there. I usually yeah. backtrack out of it pretty good, pretty quick if I see those. Uh, normal sign that I'm looking for when I go into these areas is rubs and not necessarily 10 or 15 rubs in this small area because over the years, 
I've come to determine that that's either in their bedding area or they're doing them at night. So I like to find a, a trail along the edge within what I'm looking for with some older rubs, like last year, the year before, year before, mixed in with a couple of fresh ones, because that means either it's going to be a big buck or it's a multiple buck using area over the years. So it gives me a better chance at a possibility of finding bucks. Now, Jeff, when you're going into, or should I say, when you're scouting, you know, using aerial photos, satellite imagery to find these areas, what is your normal time of the year you're really trying to do that, first off? And then second of all, when you're going in there and you're trying to scout on the ground, are, are you doing that a lot of times before season? Or are you doing that a lot of times during season uh, when you're doing all that uh, activity in there? I try and do my pre-scouting to get my cameras out. I do not like going in the woods in July or even up early August due to places that I hunt at this particular track. Um, the deer move so much once wintertime comes and people are out walking in the woods more. So I don't really start doing a whole lot until the end of September, October. And then right around gun season, I'll start actually doing a little bit more scouting and actually seeing more deer. Yeah, that makes sense. In my areas. Yeah, and that makes total sense. That's one thing I've, I've noticed as well that, you know, scouting public land in the summertime, it, it can be very, very beneficial. If you're trying to find, you know, major bedding areas, sometimes that can be very beneficial. But the thing is, like you said, you know, once season comes in, unless you're one of these states that really has an early season like Kentucky, Tennessee, Georgia, stuff like that, you know, those deer are going to move from that summer pattern by time of season, especially Alabama. Alabama opened so late in October 15th. You know, by that time, if you're scouting in, in June and July and August, you know, they're going to make a pretty big transition normally uh, by, by the time season comes around. So that makes a lot of sense why you're trying to do a lot of that stuff once season comes around and then later on in the season. Because, of course, like anything with deer, with hunting pressure, along with everything else when it comes to food sources, deer are going to continue to move their patterns and move their locations to find, you know, more secluded areas and also better food uh, quality and, and habitat. Uh, so, so that's something that I'm really uh, interested in and seeing that you've, do, uh, you've done that and had success doing that. Yeah, it's taken me, uh, like I say, a few years to figure it out and uh, start adjusting that. Like I say, that from um, my lease land is a big difference. Also, you could kind of catch them a little bit more on lease land, but public land, you don't have that opportunity. They're moving constantly. Now, when you're scouting public land, you know, you're talking about these pinch points and you're talking about these funnels. When it comes to, you know, the different terrain features, you know, it's just talking, we're talking Alabama now. I guess, uh, you know, a lot of Georgia and Mississippi would be very similar, you know, terrain features and everything. When you're out there scouting, you know, you're trying to find these certain ve vegetation and edges. Other than that, is there anything else you're really focusing on while you're out there other than these little pinch points? I mean, are you focusing on any places that look like maybe doe bedding areas or, you know, main food sources? Or are you trying to catch these deer moving more so from bedding areas to that feeding location? I'm trying to catch them mainly moving from bedding to their feeding areas and back. And, you know, like I say, using the cameras doing that, you can dictate which direction they're coming from, which direction they're going. And then I look for trails mainly in the higher pines running across the hills 
that's overlooking these uh, feeding areas because I found the bucks like to run across that and scent check everything in the hole. And that's something I've noticed as well. Uh, I'm glad you actually touched on that is, you know, a lot of guys get tied up in, especially if you're hunting a place that has a lot of pines and just, you know, all your, all your hardwoods and your oaks and everything are down in drainages. They're down in these, you know, little lower, they're lower lying areas because everything else has been harvested and planted in pines. That's up top is that a lot of guys want to hunt down low. They want to hunt in that food source and you'll probably find some deer. Uh, but you have, to me, you have a high risk of deer smelling you. Uh, just because the way the wind normally will, might swirl in those areas. But also, like you said, you know, a lot of those deer are really staging up higher up, and especially those bigger bucks are kind of winding those spots from high up on those pines before they come down. So that makes a lot of sense why you're looking higher up than most guys would probably look, because most guys are going to, you know, they're going to find a big white oak or something down there. They're going to find deer sign. They're going to hang there. They may get lucky. They may not. And, you know, most likely, depending on the situation, they might get, you know, winded by deer just because they might not know exactly where they're coming from. So that, that makes a lot of sense as well. Yeah, they those deer at that area, they love to walk along those pines right about halfway up the hill or just inside the pines because they have enough cover. And if they get one wind, they're not coming in there. And that's and then they most of the time they will wait till dark, you know, before they even start easing down in there. So you have a good opportunity trying to catch right on the edges. Now, ever since you started hunting publicly, and I know we talked about before we started recording that you really have turned on to, especially this one parcel, pretty hard the last three years and kind of learned more and more about the property. But, you know, going forward, you know, what was your main reason for getting more and more involved in hunting public land? Uh, you know, was it, I mean, what was your reason behind it, really? There was a couple of reasons. One, uh, leasing land is getting very high nowadays. It's become a very uh i'm not sure what the word i'm looking for but it's very expensive and they you're looking at land that eight years ago i was paying eight dollars an acre now they're wanting fifteen dollars an acre so i wanted to get away from that and then i wanted to take on the challenge of the public land deer and see if i could beat them there and that's exactly what i wanted to hear and that's that's a great point because that's very similar to, to kind of my story along with Andrew. You know, I don't necessarily want to spend that kind of money on leasing some property where if I just buy my hunting license and get my wildlife management license, if you're in Alabama, and be able to hunt, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres if I want to on public land. You know, yeah, you got to cut your teeth on it. And, you know, there's a learning curve, especially if you, you know, grew up hunting, you know, family property or leasing land. Uh, you know, there is quite a bit of learning curve to kind of, you know, how to get around hunting pressure to find those deer. But, you know, like you said, you know, be able to have the challenge to go out there and have success, that's key. And I think you learn a lot hunting public land like that when you go from a place that you kind of know pretty well, especially if you're leasing a land, some land for a while or family property, uh, to kind of going and do something different. I think you learn a lot and you really can grow as a hunter. And that's one thing I really enjoy about it. So that's great to hear. That's kind of your story as well. Um, now, when it comes to a little bit more about scouting, I, you know, I'm, this is one thing I'm you know, I've definitely have struggled in the past, just kind of more more so putting time into it. When you're running cameras, by, by the way, are you running just, you know, your general regular camera or are you using cell cameras right now? I'm using just regular cameras. I, I'm not so sure if I want to go into putting that kind of money for a cell camera on public land yet. Mm -hmm. Well, so with that being said, how often are you normally checking your cameras? Because I know that's a pretty hot topic that a lot of guys – they're like, you know, you can't be going in there. You know, you don't need to be going in there all the time, this and that. 
you know, how often are you checking cameras in or are you trying to check them while you're going out there to hunt or, you know, what's your tactic for running cameras on public land like that? On running my cameras, uh, it depends uh, what type of deer I'm getting on, uh, the trails they're coming in. Uh, I make sure once I get them on camera and I see the trails that they're using, which direction they're coming from or going, I do my best not to cross that trail. And I come check my cameras sometimes every other day uh, once gun season comes in, sometimes twice a week. It just depends on my work, uh, how much I can get in there. But the number one thing is, is when I get deer on camera, I do my best not to cross their trails. And then even when I'm backtracking the direction they're actually coming from to more pinpoint, I do my best not to cross the areas that I think they're using to keep my scent out. Okay. And another question I have, you know, when it comes to running cameras on public land, which I know and a lot of people have different mindsets for it, you know, personally, you know, I've got some cameras still on public land as of now, but, you know, I'm not necessarily the biggest fan from just kind of going out of your way to put cameras out. But when it comes to you running your cameras, how are you going about hanging cameras and stuff like that to keep them from getting stolen? I mean, are you hanging them at, you know, you know, two, three feet off the ground? Or are you hanging them up in a tree, you know, five, six, seven, eight feet uh, up? I'm hanging them right on, right on the ground, two, three foot up. I do put uh, small cable locks on them because... Uh, the, I believe the majority of the stuff that gets taken out there is uh, just opportunity. There's nobody come out there looking for it, so I do have small cable locks on them. You know, I call it to keep an honest person honest, but uh, I don't try and hide them. They are they're they're there. Okay, and again, that's something I've I've you know heard guys doing the same thing, and then you know I've kind of learned. I normally put my my stand or my cameras up if I'm going to hang them on public land, about normally seven to eight feet using one lone wolf tree stand or one lone wolf uh, stick, climbing stick, to kind of hang them up pretty high and then angle them back down. Now, also, when it comes to scouting on public land, you know, other than, you know, aerial photos or with your aerial photos, you know, what advice would you give to somebody if they have never been on some public land? What advice would you give them to kind of kind of cut their teeth on it? You know, what would you give them when it comes to scouting uh, as just a little bit of advice to kind of get them started? Edges, old row beds that possibly run through a section of hardwood because it'll be a little bit thicker. Uh, I always see most of my deer along any edges like that or along the edge from the hardwood to the pines. Um, biggest thing is, is get to where you can only see 60, 70 yards, not meaning you can have a shot that far, but you can actually see um, hunt tight because that's where the majority of the deer are going to be. They, that's where they feel free to walk around during daylight hours. Yeah, so when so you, you kind of mentioned earlier the whole thing about the trails cutting uphill or at least downwind of a feeding area. Um, so I know that you're hunting those edges. Now, are you, are you kind of putting more value on food or bedding as in are, are you pushing it towards the bedding or are you kind of hanging back towards the food with most of your hunts that kind of depends on what time i'm getting the deer coming through there if they're more freely walking earlier in the day i'll be closer to the actual feeding area 
if they seem to be moving closer right at dark, I try and get a little bit closer to the bed area. So I, I, I up my chances of opportunity of seeing the deer. In your opinion, how close is too close when you're, when you're talking about bedding? Ooh, it, it, that kind of depends on the wind. You know, a lot of times the wind out at this particular place pretty much blows consistent, uh, at least where I like to hunt. Uh, biggest thing is trying to stay downwind. I, I don't like to get it within probably 100 yards or so of their bedding area. I, I, I'm skittish about jumping one out. Uh, that's like the big one last year. I would never walk in his bedding area. I knew where it was at, and I never went in it. Now, Jeff, also, when, when you're hunting these areas, what is your stand setup? Like, what are you using right now to hunt public land? Are you staying really mobile like a, like a climber or maybe a mobile lock-on setup, or are you doing pre-hung sets? Uh, I do a little bit of each. I have a climber. My climber is usually gun season. I decide, hey, I want to go try this place. It's a new spot, and it's a little bit easier than for me packing in lock-ons and all. So I'll throw that up for a day or two. But then my lock-ons, I usually have them preset in certain areas that I determine by pictures and trails, uh, feeding areas that the deer are using. But I have turned around and walked the spot and moved my lock-on an hour later and had deer come through me when I sat in it that afternoon. So I'm, I, I have no problem picking up lock-on and moving at any given time. I prefer lock-on because I have more freedom of movement. Yeah, that's kind of our, our thought process as well. So it sounds to me like you kind of bounce around a little bit uh, maybe until you kind of find what you're looking for. Um, so I'm guessing, which we've kind of already covered this, but just to kind of reiterate it, uh, so you're you're putting all your focus in spots that are basically, you know, hard edges between two habitat types, um, maybe a little bit closer to the bedding where you're getting daylight movement on your cameras. Great. Awesome. So now moving on a little, what what'd you have, Jacob? Well, I was gonna say, you know, Jeff, what is your like ideal setup? I mean, if you could draw it up your best or like maybe to either describe some place that you know is like just a money spot, you know, what is your ideal spot look like when it comes to terrain and how the sign associates with that terrain feature along with their travel corridor? Ooh, that's a tough one, man. Uh, anywhere, like say, where I, I like um, slick cut pine areas, you know, where they went through, slick cut it, and they burn it, and it's thick, but it's not briar, you know, just where you can't get through it, like a cut over. Um, any of those edges that come along with those fingers, but it's pretty much got to be a quick transition. Uh, and there, I prefer some sort of ridge on that same side that the transition is. And then possibly if I'm lucky enough to have a clear cut on the other side of the finger where they have plenty of bedding, during uh, the winter time where they can sun. So kind of moving on a little bit from that, we mentioned uh, rubs earlier. Uh, how much value do you put on scrapes? I really do not pay attention to scrapes until more toward the beginning of January because yep. 
I, I find most of those out there, they're early, they're pre-scrapes. They're not coming in and checking them. Even when I stick cameras on them, when they do, it's usually one, two o'clock in the morning. So like I say, rubs are my preferred uh, buck sign to put in for, and I like to see multi-year multi age rubs. Yeah, so like kind of kind of a history of rubs. And for anybody uh, listening like around the southeast, the, the rut in this particular area is, what would you say, Jeff, probably mid to late January? Yeah, I, I start seeing them move uh, a little bit more freely. Uh, first week, you know, around the 6th or so of January, down through toward the end of January, and then it just kind of dies off real quick. Let's say you've been uh, been hunting a spot, and you know you've been seeing some good action, but not really what you've what you've wanted to see. Uh, when do you make the call to kind of cut it off? When you're you're hunting an area, and like you kind of get the realization that it might not work out there. Uh, what are some things that tell you that it might be time to move on to a different spot? If I'm not seeing deer on a regular basis within three or four days, I usually uh, pack out, go somewhere else, and not necessarily a uh, half a mile down the road. I might move 60 or 70 yards because, like I say, I only hunt where I can only see about 60 or 70 yards. So if I move 100 yards down from where I'm at, I usually don't set up without knowing there's deer. And then after about three or four days max, if I don't have deer coming in on me pretty regular, then it's time for me to move. Now, also, Jeff, when you're out there hunting, how much does hunting pressure affect what you do? And do you ever use hunting pressure um, in your, your favor? Yeah, to your advantage or in your favor on some of these hunts. Yes, that's that's what I was saying earlier. You know, I, I really don't put a whole lot of deer on camera worried about until November because some of the areas I hunt are so thick. And I count on the people, hunters, getting out in the woods, walking around, and pushing those deer into the areas that I'm in. I, that's, I, I really do count on that. And then I try to get in there. I don't necessarily always get in at sunup, but I try and stay at least to noon where people is already getting out and pushing deer around. Now, in these areas, um, you know, you're talking about, you know, very thick areas that you're kind of focusing on where these deer are very secluded in some sanctuaries. What is your tactics? Do your tactics change at all from, you know, bow season going on to gun season? No, pretty much. I stay in the same areas because uh, I've only had, out of the deer that I have on the wall and mostly any of them I've taken, only one has been ever been outside of bow range. Even though I've taken them with guns, I mean, it, I, I keep the same pattern as far as hunt tactics from bow hunting to gun, gun hunting. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's good practice right there. Uh, that's something that I'm trying to get better at because like gun hunting, I feel like everything that I figure out in bow season goes out the window and I'm like, Oh, I just need to get where I can see really far. Cause now I can shoot for 200 yards. And that probably hurts. Yes, me. Not, yes. Not at the forest. If you can, like I say, I'm telling you, if you can see past, uh, 70 yards or actually not so much as see, you can catch flashes, but if you're able to comfortably shoot that far, uh, because of the thickness and terrain, get a little bit tighter. 
That's that's what I try and tell everybody that asks me about hunting out there. Get to where you can't see. And that's actually something I've been doing this year as well, is hunting very thick cover like that where, you know, during bow season, you might not see more than 34 yards at the most. And I've had extreme success doing it this year. And it's something different. I've, I haven't done that in the past. And it's really paid off for me this year. Yeah, Jacob's having a yeah. good year. <laughs> I, I've been hearing that and seeing that. Oh, you need to come on down here and uh, put up in a couple of places. There's, I know there's a couple of good ones uh, walking around this area. Uh, yeah, there's a couple of good ones. Hey, hey, I'll, I'll take an invite any day. But but listen, <laughs> we'll have to wait until after November because Tennessee's getting pretty hot right now. So I am all focused on Tennessee right at the moment. Yeah, J- Jacob, Jacob left me down here, man. He's like, you can have Alabama. I'm taking Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, well, there's 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 a few out there that's walking around all jolly. So I'm hoping to take one of them this weekend. Right. Yeah, awesome. Saturday looks dynamite, man. Saturday looks so good. Uh, speak okay. So speaking of like rut and everything, let's kind of uh, let's kind of talk about the rut a little bit, because uh, you know throughout Tennessee and everything, it's getting started, and in Alabama, we in places we're getting close to it in little isolated pockets. But as far as rut hunting goes, do you uh? Do you focus in on, like Jacob was talking about earlier, like doe bedding kind of things? Are you looking at feeding areas, or or do your tactics change at all during the rut? During rut, uh, during my pre-rut time hunting, I'm, that's one of the things I'm looking for is does. Uh, I may not be seeing bucks, but if I'm seeing does every day, that's what I want because I know they're going to bring the bucks in. So as far as changing a whole lot, uh, I'm not seeing a lot of does. I start moving back to places that I know the does use on a daily basis. And I usually see those around 8, 30, 9 o'clock in the morning. So I always try and be in the woods by that time. But the biggest thing is, is find your does, not necessarily where they're bedding, but uh, where you know they go feed. Now, Jeff, also in your area, you know, when does the rut in your opinion, when it, when does the pre-rut normally start kicking in for your area? And then when is, you think, like around peak breeding, uh, what time of the year is that normally in your area? I start seeing even the smaller bucks and all start moving more of the first part of January. Uh, around there, the middle of January, around 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, uh, that particular seven days around that, I try and be in the woods every day. Mm-hmm. That's when I think my best chance is going to take it. You know, I took that big one on 16th, and then on the 24th, took another nice eight-pointer out there. So that's that's my little run that I like to try and keep in the woods on. Do you do any kind of calling tactics? I will grunt, uh, a real soft grunt, uh, just Depends on what time of the year it is. You know, as far as November, I may bump some just because I'm bored and see if I can get any attention. And sometimes I do it just uh, when I do see deer to see their reaction so I know if I'm doing it wrong or if I'm doing something right. But then come when I know they're starting to rut, I don't like to grunt deep and loud. I just like to bump it a little bit and, you know, once or twice and sit there for 15 minutes. But uh, overall, aggressive calling, I, I, I do not do a whole lot of that. Now, also, Jeff, where, you know, where you're hunting and everything, and your tactics kind of growing up and what you do up to this point, 
you know, what is your thought when you're hunting out there? What is your thought on, first of all, like the scent control in general? Um, you know, of course, I'm sure, you know, you're, you're also focusing on, you know, ha- hunting the winds and everything. But, you know, how much how much do you take into consideration of scent control and also just, you know, wind movements when you're picking out your spots to try to be, you know, the most efficient as possible? The scent out there is is going to take you uh, some of those places. You can be on the ground and the wind's blowing one direction. You climb the tree and it's blowing the other. You climb back down and it's blowing back the other way. So it's, it's, it's very difficult. But uh, I do keep my clothes washed uh, regular, sometimes daily. Um, I don't use much of any type of scent or anything. I do use a particular, uh, when I'm going in and scouting new areas, and if I'm thinking that I may be crossing their trails, I do use uh, another type. But the scent control out there, my stands, my climbers, or whatever, I leave those outside anytime during the season, even at home. That way I do not get any odd smells on them. Now, you know, another thing that I'm kind of just fascinated with is, you know, this parcel that you hunt on and Andrew's been hunting on a little bit. I've been out there a little bit as well, and it's so different uh, from other places, but it's also very similar to places like where we were in, in North Alabama this weekend. Um, when, when you're hunting out there, another thing I'd like to ask you about, do you ever run into hogs in any of your sets while you're in those areas? I have yet to see a hog while I'm in stand. I do have had a couple on camera. Uh, I believe I have one uh, on camera from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, last year I had two where I shot that uh, eight. And then I think one of my other cameras, but for the most part, I don't have a whole lot of hogs on camera where I hunt. Uh, I just, I'm not in that area. Do you think that the hogs like screw up your deer hunting at all? Cause I meet a lot of guys who think that if there's hogs in an area that the, the deer just aren't going to be there or something. Do, do you think they have any detrimental effect on like daylight movement with deer? I don't know if they have any uh, daylight movement, you know, and like I say, this is unprofessional um, opinion. It's just a guy that's been hunting for a while. Uh, I don't see a whole lot of hogs. The only thing that I could think of that would even bother the deer from the hogs would maybe be uh, 10 or 12 hogs eating up all the acorns and they're not getting any, which pushes them out to another area. Uh, that That's really the only thing I could see that would uh, cause a problem. Kind of the last big question that I have uh, is, you know, if you if you could, you know, narrow down one single piece of advice that makes the biggest difference for somebody who's, you know, just starting to hunt public land, like specifically maybe somebody who's, you know, hunted private land for a long time and they're now transitioning to public land, what is a, a hot tip you can give someone like that about the transition? The number one is get in the thick area. Do not hunt where you can see a long distance. That alone will help anybody that goes out there on public land more than anything else, I believe, is to get away from your uh, private land hunting tactics and hunt as thick as you can. Yeah, I can definitely relate with that because my first year hunting public land, you know, I was hunting these pretty wide open hardwood ridges and bottoms and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, oh man, the deer ought to be in here. 
and the sign was there, but it was all nocturnal sign, especially during bow season. And and that's one thing I learned very quickly on was you've got to find the thick cover. I mean, if you can, like you said, if you can see past, I still think, you know, so even 70 yards sometimes could be even too open, but if you can see definitely past 75 yards, it's way too open. Uh, and, and that's definitely something huge that the average guy coming from private to public is definitely something they're gonna have to learn very quickly on, or they, they might have struggling. Uh, they might struggle to find some deer. Now, another thing, Jeff, I'd like to ask you for another tactic. Uh, when it comes to somebody, uh, well, first let me ask you this: Have you ever hunted out of state on any kind of public land before? No, I have not. I have really thought about it. Uh, I would one day that'll be my plans. Uh, hopefully, I can do that. Uh, in the near future, next couple of years, uh, but I have never been outside the state hunting. Man, okay. Well, first off, you need to either get up with Andrew and go to Georgia with him, or you need to come to Tennessee mm-hmm. and hunt with me. Because uh, either one, say, yeah, I, I can put you on some in Georgia. I can't kill him. Maybe you can. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know the feeling from last weekend. Uh, it's rough uh, on me down there on, on some other public land I hunted. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. Now, with your, you know, your advice, you know, hunting this parcel for, you know, you know, quite, you know, three or four or five years now, um, you know, in your opinion, how how many years does it normally take for you to really kind of get your feet up underneath you on a, on a piece of public uh, to really kind of get a better idea of what the deer are really doing to really help accelerate, uh, you know, your your harvest rate and your success rate. Uh, I know for me, it definitely took me, I'd say, almost three years to kind of get my feet up underneath me. Uh, you know, what, what, what's your advice on that? What's your thought on that? Uh, my first year, it was rough. You know, I think it takes minimum two to three years because the first year, you have to get yourself out of your private land hunting practices. Uh, it takes at least a year to get out of that because it's been honed into you for years and years and years. And then the next year you start figuring it out. Hey, uh, this is where I'm seeing the deer. And then it works into your tactics of scouting, pre-scouting, uh, satellite photos, and all that. So it's 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 about two to three years. Okay. And again, that's something that I think I've realized as well. I've talked to other people and they agree with that. Now, another thing I'd like to talk to you about real briefly is, uh, do you do anything special when it comes to accessing any of your areas or any of your spots? Um, you know, are, are you looking for any kind of uh, out-of-place uh, access points? Are you doing anything different? I mean, are you a guy that's going to bring waders with you if you need them? I mean, are, are you parking in spots where, you know, kind of overlooked? Like, what is your... What what are you doing to access your places, and are you just doing uh, anything different with that? I haven't had to use any waders yet. I do have one particular spot uh, that it would probably be easier uh, if I actually decide to hunt it this year. Um, biggest thing is, is a lot of times the distance that I have to walk, I pack in jackets, um, any thick clothes I need, I, I like to pack those in so I'm not sweating. I don't put out more scent than what I need to. But uh, if the time come for me to have to swim a creek, if I knew I had a big one out there, I'd swim a creek every day. <laughs> now, also, when it comes to just parking, I mean, is are you doing anything different with that? I mean, I'll, I'll kind of give you an example. You know, a lot of places where I'm parking, first of all, you know, we talked before we got on here. You know, I don't drive a pickup truck, and I don't hunt out of a pickup truck. 
And I think that's really helps me kind of get overlooked by other guys. Cause a lot of people, they see a, a truck park somewhere. They're like, okay, some guy's hunting there and you know, they're going to, and you know, I know some guys are like, okay, when that guy's gone, I'm going to go in there and try to, you know, maybe there's deer in there. If that guy's hunting there, where if you're in a, another vehicle, a lot of times people overlook it. The people think, oh, it's a hiker or something like that. Also, you know, parking in areas that aren't necessarily designated parking areas uh, for access, you know, shoulder roads, uh, you know, dead end roads, uh, off major roads, you know, where safely, you know, you get safe enough far off the road just to kind of get different access points to get in there and to get away from people. I mean, do you have any experience doing anything like that? Uh, I park a lot right off the main road. Uh, like I say, a lot of people out there already know what I drive. I have driven my car. I have driven another vehicle out there to try and swap it up where it makes it a little bit more difficult for people to pattern me like I'm trying to pattern the deer. But, uh, you know, for the most part, it, it's public land. It's not mine. People, I don't get mad. People come in where I'm at. It's just part of it. But that's part of the challenge, too, is knowing they're there and you still take a good book. Mm-hmm. But parking on the side of the road, I, it, it doesn't bother me. I park right on the main road, right next to bridges or... I mean, wherever I've got to park it, I, I'm not scared to leave it two foot off the road if I had to. But I do try and make sure I'm a safe distance. Um, but I do avoid as many vehicles as I can as far as other people parking in hunting areas. Now, Jeff, to kind of close us out here because uh, we're coming up on time, uh, I want you to kind of run us through that big deer that you killed last year, like kind of the cat and mouse game of it, like uh, like how you found him, uh, how you went about hunting him, and uh, the day that ultimately ultimately you killed him and had that success, like uh, just just give us the rundown of it so people kind of understand how you went about having that kind of success. That deer started the year before. Actually, it started a couple of years before that, but uh, I hunted the same track, maybe three or 400 yards from there. And I'd seen some smaller bucks, uh, some does. I'm very particular. I don't pull a trigger on much. I don't like having to drag them. But uh, I hunted that area. And I knew there was a big buck from the rubs. Uh, at that time, I had started putting cameras out there because I was uh, scared, I guess you would say but I still knew where the deer were bedding at. So uh, in 2016, uh, I was buying a house and come in January, I decided I was gonna take time off working on it. Uh, Left one morning to go hunting in this particular area where I hunted and I happened to see him standing on the side of the road. Hmm. And that ended up being right about two weeks before the end of hunting season when I actually saw him. I wouldn't, I didn't even go in and hunt for him. I didn't, I figured it was late enough. Really nobody hunted that section. So I said, I'll wait till next year. And I went in the next year in that same area, scouted, found a couple of rubs like I told you about from a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, and found a good trail along the privy hedge between the uh, select cut pines and a cutover. And it took, it was about, two weeks, three weeks before I got him on camera, but I had does in there all the time, but he would use, he in the evenings, when I say evenings, uh, 
6.30, 6.40 at night, he had always come from one direction. In the mornings, if he came in like 5 o'clock, he always come in from the opposite direction. I, I pinpointed his bedding area, and I would not go into it. Uh, I didn't want to take a chance of pushing him out. So I just set up uh, a lock on right there. Uh, started getting them on camera during daylight hours before the end of November. Uh, on December 9th, I had him come in on me uh, before dark, and I kind of rushed a shot at him. He had he was quartering toward me, had his head over making a rub, which opened up the shoulder and neck. And about the same time I shot, his rat come out, and I actually hit him uh, in a bad spot. Uh, paid a tracker to come out and track him. We didn't find him. Uh, took 15 days to get him back on camera. Uh, once I got him on camera, I think I ended up having him on camera six times, only six times during daylight hours. And then I seen him twice. Uh, it was cat and mouse from there on trying to, uh, I couldn't hunt Christmas. He was in there during Christmas, two days back to back during daylight hours. And then it was almost like he said, I know you're here. So I didn't see him on, in daylight hours again until January 16th, that was the day right before the snowstorm started. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I hunted out in that snowstorm. I remember that. Yeah, it was it was the day it started sleeting. I posted. I climbed up my stand and posted, well, uh, today should be the day. Temperatures dropped five degrees, starting to sleet, winds blowing right. And eight minutes later, I shot him. Oh, <laughs> that's what I called it. That's what I'm talking about. Now, was that buck, uh, did, did you harvest him? Was that, was that with your bow or is that with uh, a rifle? That was with my rifle, and he was at uh, less than, he's right at 10, 15 yards max when I shot him. Oh, man. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. And you, you need that one power scope. I've lost, a, I, I, I lost an opportunity at an absolute giant buck on a, on a family lease. Because uh, I had a scope that was way too way too much magnification and at six power, at uh, forty five yards, all I could see was hair, and I lost that opportunity at a big deer. So that's awesome, man. That is. Well, I was going to say it's crazy that you actually were able to get a second opportunity at that deer after already shooting him and wounding him. Uh, you know, that, that, a lot of guys, you know, if that happens, most time, from what I've heard from a lot of guys, have done. I, I personally have never shot one and then you know got him back on trail camera like that. But, you know, most guys don't see him again, or at least for the rest of the season normally. So that's crazy you were able to get back on in the same season, be able to kill that deer, and have the story to tell about it. Yeah, I, I did my best. Like I say, we, I did have a tracker come out the first time. Uh, and, of course, we did go through part of his bedding area because uh, that's the direction he went back in. But we had to get in there to try and track him. Uh, once we uh, tracked him out, Again, like I say, I avoided going back in there. Uh, I don't even think I hunted that area. I put my camera out and didn't go in there for, I think it was uh, December 28th when I checked my camera and I changed the card on the 10th. So what's that, 18 days that I didn't even go in there and hunt or do anything? Mm -hmm. I wanted all my sin out to give him opportunity to relax. Yeah, that, that's a good tip, too. Like, when, when something like that happens, uh, staying out of there to let him relax, because that was something I was about to kind of bring up. 
was how long it took him to come back. And I was going to ask if you had been in there any in that time. Yeah, I'd like to say I avoided it. Uh, I didn't even hunt that area for 15 days. It was tough now, I'm going to tell you. It was tough not to go back in there, but I think it was the right decision. No, it was definitely the right decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got him. Well, Jeff, um, no, well, Jacob, do you have any concluding thoughts? No, I was going to say, Jeff, I mean, I appreciate you, again, coming on for us. I mean, you're definitely a guy that I've been wanting to talk to, uh, you know, just about your tactics and everything for for a good while now. So it's great to have you on. And again, when Andrew did the introduction about, you know, you being one of the guys that we would look at as being part of the, the 10%, and that's a, that's a saying that I forgot who told me this, but I, I truly believe it is, um, especially public land, 90% of the mature animals killed on public land are killed by 10% of the hunters. And I definitely feel like you're part of that 10%. So uh, definitely I think you're a good person to look up to and, and kind of see, you know, someone's doing it right and try to, you know, take notes from what you've done and try to apply it with what we're doing and especially with our listeners as well, kind of apply some of your tactics to maybe help them out this season. Yeah, and I have I, – anybody ever ask me, I have no problem taking people to some of my areas, uh, you know, to give them some sort of idea because I can explain it. But until you see it, uh, it's hard to understand. Uh, most people, uh, like say I was down at uh, SOA this weekend, uh, took a friend or uh, it was his hunt, and I took him to a spot, and it was a typical area he wouldn't hunt. And uh, he saw six does, and I missed a giant. So uh, it's something I don't mind uh, – Anybody wants to ask or show me, show them something. I have no problem with it. I'm always at the forest. Jeff, and and I totally forgot. That was one thing I was going to bring up is that SOA hunt. Man, you, you've got to tell us about that real quick because, first of all, you know, the SOA thing's something very new that Alabama's doing. Uh, Andrew, it's a special opportunity. What's SOA? Special, special opportunity. opportunity area. Okay, uh, which is public land, but you, it's a draw hunt. Uh, Je Jeff, real quickly, kind of talk to us about that. You know, how your buddy was drawn, you were his guest, and kind of how that hunt went. And, you know, feel free if you want to talk about the parcel, too. I think that would be kind of cool. Uh, like I say, it was the Ochi Creek SOA area. Uh, I was lucky enough, uh, probably 10 years ago or so, I used to be in some lease land across the road. So I did have a little knowledge of what type of deer were down there. Um went in uh, whenever the scout day was, I think it was August 30th, September 30th, or whatever it was. Uh, we went in and scouted, just kind of stayed down by the big creek, and that was one of those kind of hum-ho areas for me because it was too open. Uh, so rode around. Uh, his hunt was this past weekend, I think first, second, third, and fourth. Uh, and he took me Saturday with him. Friday night, I pulled up my satellite photos. Uh, wintertime, summertime, and uh, pinned me four spots. Uh, went in, hunted one that morning, had a five-point come in within 10 yards. Uh, only deer I saw uh, out of the stand, come back down and found a good rub, old rub line, like I was telling you, multi-year. Uh, ended up coming out, uh, going in the woods behind my Jeep and into my other place that I'd pinned and hit a little hardwood finger like in the pines i was telling you and i jumped up one i couldn't tell how many points it was but i'm figuring he was a uh, 130 class buck 
Uh, he was about the size of my 11 point I have on the wall. So I didn't spook him. He was real thick, uh, white color rack, but he just kind of eased off. So when <clears throat> met up with my buddy, uh, told him about it. Uh, we decided since he only had that evening and the next morning till noon, uh, we were going to try and double team that buck. So we went in, put him in there. Uh, he ended up having six does come in on him, which uh, he took his first bow kill uh, doe in that spot. And I walked down about 200 yards to another area I pinned and put up where a, a junction of some old road beds were, uh, like I say, a little bit thicker in those areas with some tall pines from select cut that met up with the hardwoods. And I sat there for a little while and heard some something behind me and then a limb break and I looked down and he was about 70 yards behind me on the road. He was, I didn't even know how many points he was until a little bit later. But uh, he sat around, fed, started coming down the road. And a smaller eight point decided he wanted to come in and interrupt everything. Uh, <laughs> picked a fight with this big buck. They fought around for probably 10 minutes or so. I mean, they were up and down the road, in the woods. There wasn't no uh, sparring match. They were really uh, getting into it. I'd never seen anything quite like that. Uh, sat there, uh, the big buck, he pushed the small one back and the small one took off. And the big one run up in the woods and stopped. And I was like, well, I'm not going to get another shot. It, I thought it was about 35 yards because I didn't judge any distance behind me. I was, when I judged distance, it was all in front of me. <clears throat> uh, and I missed him with my crossbow. Uh, he was actually 43 yards. So I shot low. Hmm. Um, they both, all three deer ran off because there was a little doe that come in at the same time. They all ran off. I'm sitting there disgusted, you know, with my crossbow. It's kind of hard to draw it in a climber you know, to get it knocked back. And I'm sitting there and I look down and about a minute later, the doe comes by and 30 seconds behind her, the, it was a 10 point. He was, he was bigger than the eight that I killed last year. Uh, so um, he probably had 10 inch G2s, uh, G3s about the same, about five, six inch G4s, long main beams that kind of stuck straight out and decent mass and he stopped by he walked by at 20 and 22 yards and stopped three times broadside oh my and i God. couldn't do and i and, and i couldn't do anything but just watch <laughs> oh and then man. about and then about two minutes after he came through the eight point came through hmm. so it was I'm... it was a very interesting hunt you know again i just use satellite photos to pick out an area that i wanted to go in and when I went in, I just kind of fine-tuned it when I got there. Jeff, man, I'm over here. I'm cringing right now. I'm just cringing from that story. That hurts, man. That hurts me just listening to it. Oh, my gosh. Now, I'll tell you what. Andrew, you, okay, Jeff, you, you and Andrew needed to get together and help him pick out some spots on his SOA because he's at Uchi Creek, too. And, uh, man, I got the unit that adjoins the one that y'all were hunting, Jeff. Man. Are you you sure? Uh, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure. 
but it uh i'll look at it uh like i say i i i've kind of had an advantage also because i had land that was right across the paved road mm-hmm. uh so i knew what potential was out there and which also helped you know to ha- keep my confidence up to use my ideas but yeah i'll, I'll pull it up uh, on my satellites and I'll, I'll shoot you some pins of what i think uh there's there's big deer down there people don't realize it uh and there's a reason uh you know we discussed earlier about open uh everybody wants to run down to the big creek and that's not the place you want to be out there Hmm. well jeff i want to thank you for coming on Uh, i think this is a good place to end it we've gotten uh, a lot of good information and uh I'm definitely going to put it to use because Alabama has been handing my butt to me on a silver platter this year. (laughs) Man, I appreciate y'all having me on, and I I hope I'm able to give y'all some good information and insight to some of the things I I look forward to and look into when I'm scouting. Y'all go ahead and write down the dates, June 28th through June the 30th. Go ahead and just mark those off your calendar so you can be at the Dalton Convention Center in Dalton, Georgia for the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard a a ton of content from that expo last year that we posted. Uh, We talked about it a ton. Look, if you're the kind of person that listens to this podcast, this show was literally made for you. It was literally designed for you, which means you're going to love it. You know, all the best companies in mobile hunting are going to be there. A lot of the best deer killers in the Southeast are going to be there. A lot of our past podcast guests are going to be there. It's just, it's going to be an incredible event. And hey, if you've been looking to either get into a saddle or maybe a mobile lock-on setup or just a different kind of tree stand setup, I'm telling you, it's worth the investment to go to this show because they're all going to be there and you, you will get to try all of them in person before you buy it. So you don't have to order something online and then wait for it and then try it when it comes in to see if you really like it, you're going to get to go put your hands on everything all in one day, test it all out and figure out exactly what works best for you and have it taken care of before deer season starts. So like I said, go ahead and put it on your calendar, guys. It's a no brainer. You got to be at the show. Again, it's Friday, June 28th through Sunday, June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. We absolutely cannot wait to meet you guys there and talk hunting. So we'll see you at the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo in Dalton, Georgia.